Section 7 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 2. Feudal Society. Chapter 1. The Rise of Feudalism. Part 1. The descendants of Clovis were not strong enough to keep in their hands the empire he had conquered. According to barbarian custom, each brother in the royal family inherited an equal share of his father's kingdom, taking not one great region, east, north, south, or west, but much as today when the property of some peasant farmer is divided, and each child claims his narrow strip of woodland on the northern slope, his rood or two of meadow down by the river, and his strip of vineyard lying to the south, so that he may possess a reduced image of the paternal farm, they separated the kingdom into a quantity of portions, equal in value, and then drew lots for them. So it happened that one would possess Arles, Bordeaux, Melon, Tours, Marseille, and Avranches, while his brother was lord of Soissons, Rouen, Nantes, Cahors, etc., leaving to a third Avignon, Verdun, Clermont-Ferrand, Laon, and Reims, while Paris was divided into three lots, and under the sway of its bishop, remained practically a neutral town so capricious an arrangement precluded any feeling of loyalty on the one hand of protective sovereignty on the other between the king and the people the anarchy in gaul was complete but in this absence of any centralized authority there were two forces which grew and increased in strength the independent municipalities and the church the barbarian sovereignty affected but little the regions south of the Loire, where the Roman manners and customs still reigned almost undisturbed, save when some invading force ravaged all on its passage. But in the north and east, where the Frankish population swelled its train with hordes of half-savage pagans from beyond the Rhine, the centre of society changed. The towns became less important, and the country more. Here the language and the manners of the population were oddly mingled. From the Seine to the Somme, the Gallo-Romans were still more numerous than the Franks, and the Latin language held its own. But from the Somme to the Rhine the barbarians were no longer, as in the kingdom of Paris, mere colonies or bands of idle warriors, leading the lusty life of peace in their country houses, hunting and carousing between two campaigns. In the northeast of France, they had settled in tribes, bringing with them their farmers and laborers, and here the natives of Gaul were the minority, while the peasants and warriors of Frankish origin formed the bulk of the population. The privileges of these latter were great. According to the Vergelt of the Frankish conquerors, the fines paid for murder or hurt to the victim or his heirs were always twice as great in the case of a barbarian being assaulted as in the event of a native's injury, while all men of Frankish race were exempt from the taxes on the land, which were still, though very irregularly, collected according to the system which the Romans had instituted. The Gallo-Roman landlords paid for all and were mulked in their crops, their cattle, their woods, their vines, besides paying a heavy house tax. 
that principle of privilege and exemption of one class at the expense of another which the french revolution should finally uproot flourished exceedingly in the france of the franks the towns in frankish gaul were governed as in the time of the romans by an assembly of citizens called the curie by a bench of magistrates and a defensor or lord protector which office in later times was generally assumed by the bishop at least that is how the town was governed and generally very well governed as a town as an independent organism but it was attached to the central power by a supreme official a sort of prefect called a graf or count a functionary destined to receive the dues and dispense the authority of the king except this functionary when in pursuit of his duties the nobles of that time whether of frankish or gallo-roman strain no longer frequented the towns the king of neustria north-western france to take an instance resided not in paris but in some great hunting lodge or farm either at Brenne or soissons or at chelles sur marne or on some other of his rural estates and the counts and margraves of his following when they did not gather round him in their bands and coteries for the form of society that was to culminate in versailles springs from a very ancient stock in france were hunting or harvesting or harrying their serfs on their own properties these noble or even royal habitations had nothing of the military aspect of the towns whose walls and towers were already quite medieval they were just handsome and spacious wooden buildings surrounded by large pillared verandas or piazzas modified from the roman peristyle whose columns were often very ingeniously carved and polished singula sirua fawens aedicavit opus altior inititur quadrataque portitas ambit et sculpterara lucet in arte faber says fortunatus the latin poet who was the guest of the frankish king at brenne these counts and margraves who gathered to the court the entrustions the great frankish chiefs who lived in the truste or fealty of a king were less his subjects than his confederates upon notice given and for cause esteemed sufficient by their peers they might transfer their allegiance to another overlord and yet retain their estates in the dominions of their ex-sovereign now a king's real wealth was not his possessions but the forces that he could muster on the day of battle so that he was in fact more dependent on his nobles than they on him and perpetually anxious to find a counterpoise to their power the rise of gallo-roman ministers often born in serfdom the royal favour so frequently bestowed on the great gallo-roman families were expedients of the frankish kings to balance the preponderance of their entrustions the struggle was no longer between roman and barbarian between victor and vanquished but between the great military nobility on the one hand and the king and his ministers on the other the feebleness of the merovingian kings rendered the effort too unequal in the middle of the eighth century the last descendant of clovis was dethroned by his nobles and sent against his will to end his days in a monastery one of his own order was set upon the throne 
the pope himself pronouncing in favour of the usurper saying it was meet that the title and the reality of power should go together the name of this usurper the candidate of the nobles was pepin le bref he was crowned by saint boniface and was succeeded by his son that son was charlemagne charlemagne reigned four and forty years and left a name as great as alexander's Mervelus hum est charles il conquist rome puil et tute calabre constantinople et sesquagne la large vers angleterre passet la mer salsa here the poet exaggerates the conqueror of rome italy constantinople saxony did not invade our islands but by the end of the eighth century the frankish king had overcome europe from spain to hungary from the mediterranean to the shores of the baltic and the northern sea the kingdom of the franks measured a thousand miles from north to south as much from east to west it was no longer a kingdom but an empire one christmas day in rome it was in the year eight hundred the pope leo the third placed on charlemagne's brow the crown of the emperors of the west and all rome shouted hail the august long life and victory to the roman emperor the echo of that cry rang through italy to france germany northern spain all at last again united in a pax romana charlemagne had conquered europe more than that he organized and administered his vast possessions this great captain who could read but little who despite his efforts could never learn to write was one of those master minds who every thousand years astonish humanity like that other soldier of france who exactly a thousand years later for eight hundred to eight fourteen match with eighteen hundred to eighteen fourteen was to conquer the world again and to renew its law charlemagne established his order wherever his armies pitched their camps he drew up a code of customs founded schools himself attending their classes learning at fifty greek and latin he made an immense and glorious effort to pull the car of empire out of its barbarian rut and set it rolling down the roads of rome but like napoleon charlemagne failed he had amassed too much he had no fit successor his son louis the debonair was a feeble faltering soul his three grandsons cast lots for his vesture and between them dislocated the empire the eldest charles the bald took france louis appropriated germany the weakest lothar was given italy and to make his share less conspicuously small was accorded the title of emperor with a long strip of territory torn from the living side of france from the meuse to the rhine from the rhone to the alps which was named lothar's land lotharingen or as we say lorraine but no act of empire could infuse a soul into the bleeding remnant snatched from the flanks of gaul the rib was a rib not eve lorraine continued french in feeling and tradition many of the wars of europe have sprung from this iniquity perpetrated at verdun in eight forty three 
a hundred years after the treaty of verdun lothar's land had disappeared half the duchy of lorraine had been annexed to germany the other half englobed in italy charlemagne's inheritance was divided against itself otto the great wearing at once the crowns of italy and germany restored the roman claims under the title of the holy roman empire of germanic nationality and france found in front of her the rival and enemy with whom throughout the centuries she should dispute the sway of europe End of section seven